pining for more trees. This week, we're going to focus on one thing really, really hard. And that thing is trees. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 139, where I feel really uncomfortable jumping into the rapid fire segment of something we're excited about in an episode about trees, given that like forest fires are burning everywhere and filling the skies with acrid smoke. Seems like a bad look to me. Yeah, I saw the sun today for the first time and it feels like a week and it was amazing, but I feel bad for all those trees, definitely. Well, burn, trees burn. On to the rapid fire segment. Things are finally reopening, and Edmonton is getting back to its theater roots. This week, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh was in Edmonton, performing theatrically in the role of electable here. Strathern is now playing host to LRT vehicles as the Valley Line Southeast continues its testing. The trains, loaded up with bags of concrete to increase their weight, are now undergoing testing in a broad range of scenarios. It seems, however, that the tests are set up to fail. Speaking Municipally has exclusively received a leak set of the testing scenarios, and number 11 requires that the train be something that city management would want to use themselves. After some in-depth reporting, we have conclusively confirmed that the train does not, in fact, go to St. Albert. The Edmonton Oilers have announced its preseason schedule, which will include games against the NHL's latest expansion team, the Seattle Kraken. Five of the preseason games will be played at Rogers Place, and a special sixth game will be scheduled on the tiny ice rink in front of City Hall against the kids from Miss McCullen's grade six class in order to give the Oilers an opportunity to pull out a win. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode, it's brought to you by Rumi. Cold drafts, flickering lights, and where's that leak coming from? You're either living in Troy's house that he did his own renos for, or you need to call Rumi and ask a home inspector. You can connect with a certified professional home inspector by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or what you might need to call in an adult to help with. Uh, you can visit rumi.ca, uh, that's R-U-M-I.ca, and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. So if you were uh, listening very keenly into the rapid fire segment, you heard a voice that was neither Mac nor mine. And that's because we have a guest on the podcast this week who, in a move that is very different from most of our guests who are stuffy city bureaucrats, wanted to participate in the rapid fire segment. He's a keeper of bees, a lover of trees, a man with as many hats as we have trees in the city of Edmonton. It's Dustin Bajer. Um, He's here to talk to us all about green things and trees. How are you doing, Justin? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, reading the little script there is much more difficult than uh, one might imagine. Doing a podcast is very difficult. Please extol the virtues of how <laughs> difficult our jobs are and really let the listener know we've got it rough. It's incredible. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Dustin. We've been in conversation recently because I was very curious about something that I thought might be tree related and I thought you might be able to help me with. And of course, you knew how to find the answer. So I'm talking about mulch. I didn't even know to call it mulch. This is how uninformed I was about this. But I walk around the city, especially downtown and in the spring and and earlier this summer, I noticed that 
all of the landscaping, all of the tree beds, the planters, all that kind of stuff had like light colored bark all over it. And it's magical stuff. And I was like, this is, this is different. I think like, I don't remember seeing it like this in previous years. What's going on? And you informed me that it is in fact called mulch. And I have two quotes here from your email that I, I need to share with our listeners. You said, quote, that stuff is magic. And then you said, if it were up to me, I'd cover the city in a foot of mulch. Joking, not joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us real. about the mulch. What, 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 what did I discover? <laughs> what did I not discover? What did I learn about? What did I yes, see around? So, so mulch is just in, in nature, it happens on its own. So if you think about walking around a forest, you're going to hear twigs and leaves and all kinds of things um, beneath your feet. And so that's just you know, decaying organic matter. So the leaves are going to, uh, off the trees are going to, you know, land on the ground every fall and they're going to decompose over winter. And what that does in the wild is provides a layer of insulation. So that benefits everything that's living in the soil, including the roots of the plants. Um, but it's also nutrients for the soil. We've just come off of a year and a half of making sourdough bread. So you could think of your soil as a starter. It's filled with life. Uh, and all of those good things, and you have to continuously feed it in order for it to, to remain healthy and active. And the same is true with soil in a forest or soil underneath a tree. And so mulch is just typically the human application of some organic layer, usually organic, uh, that's going to break down over time. It's going to provide nutrients. It's going to hold on to water. It's going to feed that healthy soil, and it's going to keep our, uh, our urban trees happy. You say usually organic because you can use stuff like newspaper as mulch, too, if you really wanted to. And newspaper is organic uh, in the sense that it is, you know, made of carbon and is going to break down. And so some people will use newspaper as a way of suppressing weeds and they might, you know, to make it look better, cover it over with uh, wood chips. Inorganic mulches would be things like stones, gravel. Sometimes you see landscape cloth. Every once in a while I see like ground up like rubber or something like that. Those are usually not good for plants. Uh, they don't break down. They don't feed the soil. The, in the case of the rocks, they really heat up during the day. And so instead of keeping the, the soil cool and feeding the soil, they don't offer any direct nutrients in any quantity. And uh, they're going to sort of bake the, bake the roots of the, the trees. So what I saw around all of the trees downtown and, you know, in Alex Dakota Park near my house wasn't unusual the color might have been a little different this year because maybe they used some different materials? Yeah, and so uh, talking with the city, they mostly use materials from their arborists. So you can imagine the city comes out, they prune a big tree in front of your house, and all of that gets ground up into mulch. And instead of hauling that off and throwing it into the dump, if it's disease-free, it can be uh, reapplied around the base of the tree. And so really they're just trying to mimic what is happening naturally in a forest. Uh, you said if it's diseased free, what happens to all the disease stuff? Because I know like Dutch elm disease is a pretty big problem that we try to prevent with our natural like canopies in the city of Edmonton. What do we do with all the toxic waste equivalent of disease tree mulch? To, so to the best of my understanding, um, it is hauled away and disposed of. Now, I don't know if that means it goes into the dump or if it's just part if it's compost under high heat where the pathogens are going to be killed but i do know that it doesn't go back onto the base of the trees just to avoid uh, spreading those diseases around 
So one of the things we asked the city about this was, you know, if this was a different schedule or if they changed that. And I thought the response was pretty interesting. They said scheduling of mulching shrub beds is entirely dependent on staffing and budgetary resources. And these resources fluctuate often without notice. It is not uncommon to bypass the intended program in the fall or spring until the next available opportunity. That that sounds kind of crazy to me. If this is such a good thing, and and really, does, I don't recall council deciding there's not enough budget to go and put mulch on the shrub beds. Is this bizarre to you? Yes and no. Uh, personally, I I think I see. I mean, I've described it as magical. I see a huge benefit to uh, mulching our shrub beds, our our trees. Certainly, for getting trees established, it is exceptionally helpful. I understand, though, that if the budget is not very stable or is changing from year to year, you know, it might not take the highest priority. You know, mulch is often like a preventative thing. You know, speaking personally, I have a tree nursery in the city and I feel like it's such an amazing resource. I bring in literally truckloads of mulch from arborists. You know, the amount of time it saves me in terms of labor just from not having to weed and not having to water as much is kind of astounding. And so it is It is definitely a beneficial thing to have. But, you know, they're working on, you know, managing, you know, hundreds of thousands of trees in the tree inventory. They have a goal of planting a few million more trees. And so I can see how adding mulch this fall versus next spring, it's a preventative thing, but it probably also isn't at the top of the list. So you mentioned that you had a tree nursery in Edmonton, and I suppose we jumped the gun a little bit on just like assuming you're the tree guy. And I mean, if you read any news article in the city of Edmonton, you are the tree guy. But how did you get to this point? How did you come to learn so much about trees? What's what's your background here? Yeah, <laughs> physics and mathematics. Uh, <laughs> uh, my background is actually education. And so uh, I, I spent most of my, I guess, professional career uh, in the classroom. But I grew up in the country. I've worked on a few tree nurseries. And uh, it's something that I kept going back to. There's something amazing about a tree in that it offers a tremendous amount of services. And so let's take the large elm tree that's in the middle of a park. Uh, you have this living thing that is mostly water. Uh, all living things, you know, hold a lot of water within them, and so it is going to be cooling the uh, space around it by casting shade. It's going to be cooling the space around it through evaporation, so the water leaving its leaves. It is going to provide habitat for countless animals and insects. It's going to drop its leaves, and if we leave the leaves alone. It'll provide its own mulch and build soil. And um, often these trees have a, have a story behind them. A lot, a lot of people don't realize that our elm forest, as an example, is one of the largest collections of American elms left on the planet because you know we haven't had Dutch elm disease. And so it, it tells a story. And so I see trees as important pieces of, of infrastructure that were kind of living within. And so if you take the, you know, 12 million trees that that are in the city of Edmonton, you know, a lot of them have stories behind them, histories behind them. A lot of them were planted by somebody or they were left in the river valley. And and, uh, the river valley is interesting in and of itself for reasons that we could talk about. But um, they also provide these, these ecosystem services. And we have declared a climate emergency. 
you know, we're going to be struggling with things like drought, like extreme heat, like we have this summer. We know that there are neighborhoods in the city that, that experience flood. Trees are a way of mitigating some of those challenges. Uh, and then, you know, I, I also do some heritage tree research for the Edmonton Heritage Council. And so to find individual trees and to learn about their background and who planted them and who brought them here, I would argue that the makeup of our urban forest is actually a reflection of the people who have have been here. And so everything from our our First Nations communities to, you know, different waves of settlers have brought different plants. And so we have a unique makeup uh, of plants in this in this city that really is a reflection of of its occupants. 12.8 million trees, that's what we've got or the estimate. You alone, I think I've heard you say, have about a thousand of those, right? Yeah. Now those wouldn't be, I don't know if those would be counted in that inventory. Okay. Um, in that these are trees that I've been growing um, as part of this little urban nursery project. The hope is though, to get those trees into schools and community groups and into parts of the parts of the city that are experiencing some of the challenges of, of climate change. And so the idea is to add them to that inventory. Well, you have launched uh, an initiative. I'm going to plug it. I'm a member uh, called Shrubscriber to build this community of people that want to plant more trees and grow trees in the city. And I think it's a really great initiative that you've kicked off here. Uh, one of the things you've said you want to do through that community is obviously connect those of us interested in trees, but also just plant a whole bunch of trees. That sounds to me like a volunteer thing, but I guess there's a cost associated with that, right? Like what does it actually cost to plant a tree in Edmonton? Yeah, so it depends on the tree, depends on the location. Certainly the the highest cost in planting a tree is getting it established. And so moving a tree to a site, getting it in the ground, there's some work around choosing a site. And if we have a tree that's going to live for 400 years, um, how do you pick a site that's going to last for 400 years? That's a challenge in and of itself. Right. You know, who takes care of it as an example? Is it going to be uh, a municipal tree? So there's something in the city called a request to plant. So citizens can request to plant a tree in a, in a park. They agree to take care of it for so long until it reaches a, a certain point, And then the city adds it to the inventory. And so there's a lot of work around site selection and care of the plant itself. But I also feel like in the case of like the school projects and the community projects that I get really excited about, a lot of it is around the community that is going to take care of it. When you have a hundred year old tree, that's a hundred years of every year, somebody not deciding to cut it down. And so that represents a a legacy of, of, of care to to some extent. And so how do you partner with folks who are uh, excited about a tree, who want to get it in the ground and want to you know participate in that that practice of care? A lot of the the care around a tree or our urban forest is conscious to some extent. So right now we have this initiative within the city to plant 2 million trees. That's a conscious decision. And so hopefully we can do it. Uh, hopefully we can surpass it. The fact that we have as many trees in our inventory as, as we do at the moment, that was a conscious decision. And so how do we ensure, how do we carry on that legacy, you know, planting these thousand trees or the next thousand trees? to make sure that A, the trees are supporting the communities that they're going into, but also the communities are supporting the trees themselves. I want to talk a little bit about that number of trees because obviously we're in a climate emergency. I don't think, especially looking outside 
today. Well, maybe today specifically. We're recording uh, Wednesday evening, and for the first time in a couple of weeks, it feels like I'm able to see the sky. But you know, we've had smoke in the sky. We just came out of this heat dome. We've been really feeling the effects of climate change the past couple of weeks. And you mentioned that trees can help with that. I know Edmonton as you know the place with this like largest urban forest in North America. I feel like we have a lot of trees. Do we have enough trees? Is that a metric we can even know about? Do we need to plant more? What's the answer there? Oh, I don't know where we are on on trees in North America. I think part of that could be defined by the number of trees we have and part of that could be defined by by like the total canopy cover. So what percentage of the city is sort of being shaded by um by vegetation. Presently, Edmonton sits a little over, um, or at least the last document that I saw, City of Edmonton document um, from 2012, had the City of Edmonton at about a little over 10% tree cover with a goal of reaching 20%. And I tried to do a little bit of digging on where that 20% number came from. Uh, I found a document out of the States sort of talking about different ecoregions or bioregions and, and basing that number on perhaps like the historical number of trees that would have been there. And so they kind of recommended that a prairie city might have, you know, a good number to strive for would be 20, 20%. Now I would argue that Edmonton is Aspen parkland, which is this sort of mixed deciduous forest. And so I, I think historically we've maybe had more than 20% tree cover in the past, but even going with that number. So if we're at, let's say a little over 10% now, we want to get to 20. We have, 12.8 million trees, essentially, we then need to double it, uh, if my math is correct, <laughs> which is which is many more than 2 million trees. And so I think, I think that the 2 million is a great goal. It sounds really ambitious. At the same time, if we also have a goal of getting to 20%, we might need to up that. The last time Tapper reported on this, actually, we, we identified that this tree canopy cover was about, yeah, 10 or 11% in 2010. And the goal was 20% by 2018, which has long since come and gone, and what you've just described made it sound like a completely impossible goal to reach because these 2 million net new trees, and what we're talking about there is really defined in the city plan, right? City plan yeah. talks about how important um, Edmonton's forest is and that we want to plant these 2 million net new trees, which means like two more on top of anything that might be you know, diseased and cut down or yeah, whatever it along means, the way. It means right? maintaining what we have plus adding yeah, more. And and that goal is, you know, kind of loosely like 2040, 2050, right? right? That's a long time. And if we need to double it, then we're really not on track is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Now, my math might be a little bit off in the sense that, you know, different trees have different, you know, canopy spreads. And sure. so the coverage that you're going to get from, I don't know, let's say a Saskatoon is much different than what you're going to get from a mature elm tree. But you know, just kind of taking the, doing some back of the napkin math, um, it seems to me that we're going to need much more than 2 million trees in order to hit that goal. Now, you know, doubling the amount of trees in the city, there's, there's no question in my mind that that would offer a tremendous number of benefits uh, in terms of climate change mitigation. Certainly when it comes to heat island effect, but also on the flood and drought mitigation front, I think if you throw some some edible landscaping in there, there's also a really great opportunity for community engagement as well, but also building biodiversity. A lot of these things that you know that I'm talking about, they they align very nicely with 
with uh, with city plan, which is I'm sure why the two million trees is in there. But um, I might be missing something. But it seems like the two million would fall shy from reaching that 20% goal. One thing that strikes me is looking at that same city plan document that we're talking about. In the city plan, it quotes Edmonton's tree count as around 12.8 million trees. Yeah. So around 13 million trees. But of those, 380,000 are publicly owned trees. Yeah, that's right. And that matches with my perspective. I live over in Hazeldean. And when I look around my neighborhood, I've got these you know beautiful American elm lined streets. But the majority of our canopy is on private property. That's correct. And that leads us to the question of if we know that this is a massively important thing to maintain, if we know that we need to massively increase our canopy, but most of it is on private property, how can we, from a policy perspective and from a legislation perspective, actually protect and encourage this? Should we even be doing tools that, you know, restrict usage of private land and what you can and can't do with the trees on your land. And if we should, what exactly do we do? Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple thoughts come to mind. For starters, you know, 300,000 trees in the city's inventory, adding 2 million, that that's that's a pretty, represents a pretty big, big jump. Is that what they mean in city plan, that those are 2 million publicly owned trees? I don't trees? think those necessarily mean boulevard trees. I think that a lot of projects like Roots for Trees does a lot of really great work naturalizing parts of uh, the river valley that are maybe perhaps being mowed. And so returning those to nature, I think those trees would represent mm. part of the 2 million, which wouldn't necessarily go into the tree inventory. But, but Troy is, is right. Most of, you know, most of those trees are on private land. Uh, recently, there was... Um, some great work done around protecting boulevard trees or mostly, you know, trees in the city's inventory when it comes to development. This idea that, you know, a house goes down, you know, new, new infill goes in and in the process, you have a lot of compaction, um, changing of the grade that can uh, negatively impact uh, the city's inventory, the city's, the city's trees. And so there's a lot of good work that's being done around ensuring that there is a tree protection plan in order to protect that inventory. There isn't much talk about protecting the trees that are on site. And I'm not sure if it's just like ownership is is a really big thing in, in Alberta, right? If you own it, you know, you've got the right to do what you want with it. The challenge is that the existing trees on private lots do offer public good and removing them and replacing that with let's say a really large house or a whole bunch of hardscaping is ultimately going to contribute to added flooding, added urban heat island. And so as far as I know, the city, I think it's city admin is, is been asked to look at this, but nothing has been uh, really set in stone yet, but protecting those, those private trees would go a long way. I know some cities do have bylaws on the books like Toronto and Ottawa do have bylaws to protect mature trees, at least on private property, not all trees, but at yeah. least those that are defined as mature trees. And this tree protection bylaw that you're you're talking about, public tree bylaw in Edmonton, hasn't actually been approved yet because Epicor and the developers were a bit upset about the potential fees, but it's coming back to council in August after some tweaking. So hopefully we can at least protect our public mature trees, but I haven't heard much discussion about protecting the private ones. I have another question, kind of a dumb question, probably, about these new trees we want to build or uh, plant, rather. I say build because 
I often hear you talk about them as like green infrastructure, and that just makes me think of build. But anyway, plant. Is there room to plant another 12 million trees or even another 2 million trees? Like, where would they all go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a really nice, solid answer for that. Certainly, I think that the way we design our our streets, I, I just came off of a, a vitalization meeting uh, for my neighborhood. And so we're talking about, you know, bike lanes and all of these kinds of things. And so uh, adding adding trees to some of the avenues that, that currently don't have them was was on the list. And so there's there's some opportunities there. Two million trees, probably a lot of those are going to go into naturalization projects, which benefit the city in a few different ways. So one is it gives us those trees, but two, it also removes sort of land that's just being mowed at the moment. So it should reduce costs in the long run. Certainly, I do think that there's opportunities in our parks, in the, in the new neighborhoods that we're designing. But, uh, you know, choosing where to put those trees is important. There's uh, a few gravel parking lots I wouldn't mind becoming trees. I'm all for it. Throw down a whole bunch of mulch, plant some trees in it. While we're on the random questions thing, I figure this is a good time to get this out. I recall, you know, on White Ave from like 96th Street up to 99th Street, we used to have these gorgeous, massive, mature median trees that cast shade over the whole area. And it was about four or five years ago, the city told me there was a disease that went through and the whole thing had to be clear cut and cut down. And that made me very, very sad. But it also made me a bit nervous because like you said, we do have the largest reservoir of American elms in a city. How vulnerable are we in terms of biodiversity of our tree canopy? If a disease comes through here that we're not prepared for, are we just donezos? Like, how big of a risk is that? It's a really good question, and it's it's a really big risk. Uh, we have a ton of American elms, and we have a ton of green ash. So right now, Dutch elm disease and emerald ash borer are working their way west. Now, there's been a lot of really great work on Dutch elm disease. It usually involves injecting trees with um, a fungicide to kill the fungus that's spread by the beetle. But there have been municipalities who've kind of figured out how to work with it. That being said, we do not want it here. And that being said, because we have those such large inventory of, of American elms, we are at risk. The, the bigger one is the emerald ash borer. Like I've looked this set up a few times. Approximately 60% of the boulevard trees in Edmonton are green ash. So this disease, emerald ash borer, has just hit Winnipeg. Now, if and when, probably when it reaches the city of Edmonton, we will lose 90% of that 60% within two years. So we're talking about you know, losing a tremendous amount of trees. The only benefit that I can think of of this is like, I don't know, for furniture makers, like there's going to be a <laughs> lot of extra lumber. There'll be a, a ton, you know what, there'll be a ton of mulch. We mulch that, we'll be a ton, we, can, we can do the whole city. There we go. One but you, you can't distribute the mulch if it's got the ash borer in it. It only affects the ash trees, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, so it's it's that that disease in particular is very scary and has huge repercussions for the city of Edmonton. Um, I look out at my boulevard and it's you know it's mostly ash, and so like not to be bleak, but um, you know I, I'm often thinking like what should I plant there in preparation for the emerald ash borer? But, um, you know, I'm kind of talking doom and gloom. The city is well aware of it. 
you know, you talk to city administration, they're going to be able to tell you all about Emerald Ash Borer. But I do think that it's, it's a huge risk. So most of the cities, to go back to Troy's question, most of the city's trees, our boulevard trees are really only made up of a handful of species. You see um, ash, you see uh, our elm. Occasionally you find some really old Manitoba maples. They've kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, we're starting to see more lindens, more lime trees, uh, some oaks uh, here and there. I know that the city is playing around with other trees like honey locusts. I heard a rumor that they're playing around with catalpa. So increasing diversity is definitely important. I would love, and this is a personal opinion, and like I'm, I'm not a, I don't have a, a PhD in, in tree diseases, um, but I would love to see the city stop planting elms and ash altogether in that every additional tree is just kind of a little bit more risk. And of course, anytime a tree comes out, you know, planting something else in there that isn't elm or ash, which I have seen the city doing, which, you know, we're, we're familiar with social distancing, right? If we can, if we can mix up and at least put a little bit of distance between these, these big elm and, and uh, ash stands, that is going to help uh, prevent diseases or the spread of diseases when, when they do get here. You might not know the answer to this question, but on the like social distancing type front, is the emerald ash borer so effective just because there's a high density of the trees and they can easily hop between? Or is it sort of like airborne once it hits a city, ever everything gets it? Yeah, so it's spread by an insect and um, and it can fly. And so it, it can travel fairly far and fairly quickly. And so that's the reason why it, why it spreads so rapidly. Dutch elm um, is also spread by a beetle, but it's much slower moving, though... It's my understanding that when elm tree roots touch, um, that the disease can spread from tree to tree that way. And so even just having, you know, trees in close proximity that way will spread the disease through physical contact. So having more diversity, more biodiversity in our trees, more species would be a good thing. But what about non-Indigenous trees? Like I seem to have read a few places now that a lot of the trees we might have in the, in the river valley, for instance, are not indigenous to this area. They were brought here by settlers as part of this colonial project. Is that a risk and a concern, not just, you know, culturally, but also, uh, you know, the risks of, uh, of bringing in trees and plants that weren't native to this area? The river valley is wild um, in that it's a very cosmopolitan forest. It's made up of, you know, lots of native plants that have been here for a very long time, plus, you know, everything that sort of people have brought. And so birds and animals move things around. And so you can go down there and you could find just about anything and everything, um, which makes it a really interesting. And in some ways, and this is going to be a little bit controversial, in some ways, a very biodiverse forest, because you have you have this sort of mix of species. Now, the the question of you know native versus introduced species is an interesting one, and I, I don't think I have a, a an an really strong answer. Our elms and our ash, you know, are not native to Edmonton. They are native to North America, uh, but they would have you know been a conscious decision to bring them over. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're moving trees, there is a risk of diseases. So, as an example. Dutch elm disease came from diseased wood that was imported into the Americas. And so it is absolutely a concern. And we also have to be, you know, protecting our native species. Uh, This is a topic that like, I love talking about this stuff. And I have like no 
real solid answers because we're also in a strange situation where climate change means that our, you know, things are changing rapidly. We're starting to see situations where perhaps trees from further south might do a little bit better here than they have in the past. And some of our native plants might do a little bit better further north. And you get into some really interesting kind of debates around assisted migration. So do we have the responsibility to move plants in, in this context, right? They can't, they can't move as, as easily. And so do we have a responsibility to actually move uh, organisms here and, and, and grow them out where they have a chance to thrive? And then if we do, what's our responsibility to our native uh, plants and animals? Yeah, it can get a little bit, little bit sticky. Definitely, uh, definitely interesting though. Okay. Uh, I mean, on a little bit of a lighter topic then, Dustin, from <laughs> disease and climate change and all the rest of it, like as if those problems weren't bad enough, I'm sure you right. saw the story this week that the city wants to plant, what is it, 16 trees or something? 18 trees in a, park, a pocket park in Idlewild. And there's a group of citizens who are against this. There's tree nimbies. I had no idea. Right. What, what's your take on this? Is You're this- going to get me hate mail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm a little biased. I'm all for, I'm all for the trees. Um, I believe that the 16 was even a reduction in, in what they initially wanted. Yeah, it says they wanted 30, and now it's dropped to 18 after hearing feedback. I'm not sure what kind of feedback would have convinced them that fewer trees is better, but here I, we are. I mean, I understand that people get really attached to to their spaces, and I don't I don't particularly know this space uh, all that well. I can say with you know, some confidence that the addition of trees are going to provide benefits to that park and to those residents. Um, There was a little bit of talk about the species that they chose. And so I think Ohio buckeye was one, which can be a little bit messy and then it drops these these nuts on the ground and to make things a little bit worse, the nuts are toxic if you consume them. Um, so maybe, maybe some conversations around swapping some of those species out mm-hmm. would be helpful. Yeah. I think it's going to be challenging to, to enact some of these, some of these green infrastructure solutions and, and planting trees seems like a fairly low, low hanging fruit in that, um, you know, it's, it's not adding a water harvesting swale to your, front boulevard or to capture runoff from the street. I don't know if I have a nice answer for this other than other than I really see the value of having those trees in that park. I would be very surprised if down the line, you know, a future generations looking at, at that park would scoff at the addition of those trees. We were just talking about Giovanni Gaboto in the context of neighborhood renewal and uh, there's some talk about putting paths in there it was mentioned that some of the trees might be impacted and that that pretty much ended the conversation around the the sidewalks and that people were pretty adamant to not harm those trees yeah and so there's a piece of sort of wanting to hold on to what you know whether it's here's a bunch of trees or here's a park with no trees i think if we approach this from a you know some evidence-based decision making with the you know throw on the lens of, of climate change uh, we know that trees, nearby trees increase property value of homes. I personally see a ton of reasons why why those trees could and should go into those uh, into that space. Right. Hate mail commence. <laughs> uh, so I think before we close, we have a couple questions of tree related trivia and trivialities that, you know, 
we've got you here. We might as well. I'm worried drill. about this. <laughs> Let, let's let's drill your mind. Let's let's see see what you got. The first thing, um, we've got an upcoming election. Trees are important. Is there a tree candidate for council? Like you know, tree beards choice. Someone who the Ents <laughs> would support. You know, in opposition to Isengard. What? Anyone coming to the front of the pack is like. Don't worry, I got you. I'm all about trees. So I've not talked to all of the candidates. Um, I have had a few conversations, though. Um, I have jumped into a few Zoom calls with uh, Ashley Salvador, and uh, she's very supportive of trees and green infrastructure. Uh, and I've had a couple phone calls with Michael Jans, uh, who's very interested in in planting more trees, particularly in, in the context of, of schools. And so, uh, which is no surprise because he has. Um, he's coming from a, being a school board trustee. And so I, I can't speak on any of the other candidates, but uh, I know that those two are uh, seem to be very much uh, in favor of, of continuing to build and take care of our urban forest. And so more candidates have love for trees. Uh, I got two random ones I want to ask you about. So I live on 104th Street downtown. I look east and I can see... Manulife place very clearly from my balcony. And anytime pre-pandemic, of course, somebody would come to my house and look out the window or sit down on the balcony, they'd say, wait a minute, are those like giant spruce trees or whatever on the podium of Manulife Place? Do you know anything about those trees? I know nothing about those trees, but now I need now I must. I know that what is there's a piece of art on Rice Howard Way. It's yes. like that big stone. This thing. is my second question. What's the oh. deal with that tree? <laughs> it's not real. It's a fake tree. Um, it was a real tree. It kept dying, um, and so because it's on a stone, <laughs> it's on, I guess it's on a stone. And at least the last time I was down there, which I have to admit was has been a little bit while now, uh, I noticed it was fake. And so I, I had, uh, I think, I'd sent a tweet. I looked up who the artist was, and I sent a tweet. I hadn't heard. I was like, "Do you know that your your stone has a fake tree on the top of it?" Yeah, if it's fake still, we need to fix that. We need to replace that. There are species that will do fine up there. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking in something like a bristlecone pine, so or a white bark pine, if we want to go something native to here. Bristlecone pine is interesting in that they're you know they live on the top of mountains. They're really rugged. They're really tough, and they can live for like thousands of years, which hmm. is pretty damn cool. They're also struggling in their native habitat. So they're native to like the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Climate change is warming things up and they keep moving further and further up the mountain to escape those warmer temperatures. But once they reach the top of the mountain, it's not like they can hop to the top of another mountain. And so uh, as it turns out, they do very well in Edmonton. So I guess the Edmonton climate is similar to a mountaintop in Colorado, but they're tough little trees. And I think one of those up there, which is... This is a tangent, but I was um, I had a conversation with somebody who works for the company who manages the Stan Tech Tower, and uh, I I had reminded me I had sent I, apparently I tried to problem solve everything through Twitter, which I should have learned by now is uh, not the way to do things. But um, I had sent a tweet to Stan the Stan Tech Tower uh, or Stan Tech when the tower was being built, being like, "You need to stick a bristlecone pine on the top of that thing. It could be like Edmonton's tallest tree. We'll we'll put it up there." <laughs> Right at the very top. There's definitely a like marketing campaign in there somewhere. Edmonton, similar to a Colorado mountaintop, you know? <laughs> okay, well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, we got a lot of random tree facts. We're a bit all over the place, but it's what happens when you have someone who like 
is interesting and knows a lot about stuff. You just got to ask those burning questions. So thank you for entertaining our uh, barrage. I'm happy to. Um, so we like to give our guests a little section. We already gave you some free plugs at the start for uh, your uh, new Shrubscriber service. But is there anything else you want to let our listeners know about? Anything you want to plug? Ooh, uh, if you know of an obscure tree or just a tree that you really love, um, find me and tell me about it. I would love to. I would love to hear about your weird tree. That was a cool plug. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, we already talked about Shrubscriber. So tell me about your weird tree. Perfect. Okay, you can uh, send all your weird tree requests to Dustin. And you know what, CC Mac and I are about it. We're, yeah, we're always definitely. down here about weird trees. Definitely. Thanks so much for joining us, Dustin. It was great having you. And you know, trying to think of a tree pun to uh, end out on. Um, Got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Burned them all on the title of this episode. If you could see the trees again this week, it's either because there's less smoke or you go to an optometrist. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Many people don't call their optometrist first for urgent care when they have a need for it. From spring cleaning mishaps to winter eye infections, if you or your family have an eye emergency... Doctors of optometry are trained to diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications. No referral necessary. And just a reminder, Alberta health coverage is available towards your urgent eye care appointment. To find an optometrist in your area, visit optometrists.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. You can learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. And remember, if you have urgent podcast needs, that can always be solved Friday at noon in the Speaking Municipally feed. Make sure to subscribe. Until next time, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Dustin. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.